Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes, ma'am. Hmm. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. After we've watched all the movies in a particular year, we will tell you if the Academy chose correctly and why. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And I'm a little bit bummed out right now because Brazil just lost in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, so I'm sorry if I'm a bit of a downer. Yeah, I thought, I thought you were slightly bummed because of this movie, because I'm a little bit bummed because of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit bummed because of this movie, too. We should say what it is. Uh, so this week, we are continuing the 1934 Academy Award nominees with The Thin Man. Which was a little bit of a bummer, and we, now we will talk about why. Yeah, I, I mean, I've talked before, I think, on the podcast about how I get way more upset about a B-plus movie that could have been an A than I do about a movie that's just like, eh, it's a C. And this is kind of our first B-plus movie that could have been an A, and it really bums me out, because I, I love the first half of this movie so so dearly. It's so great. And then it takes a very, very sharp turn and kind of recovers, but then is just kind of forevermore this different, lesser film for the back half of the movie. And it's a bummer. You actually sent me a text because you were, you watched it before I did, saying that uh, this movie had the worst of the, oh, why did they put that in moments? Which we've had a few movies that have had that. And so I was, I was really watching for it, and I think I... I assumed that it was going to be something racist because in every other movie it has been. Yeah, I, I think what I texted you because I it was very deliberate about the phrasing was that it has the most acute moment of putting some bullshit in the film to really drag it down because it's literally just a sound effect. If they just removed the sound effect, I think I would be halfway okay with it. But it's there is a moment halfway through where... We could have just had our lead push his wife out of the way of danger, and instead he just really aggressively hits her. And it's, it's it sucks. I went back and watched the first half of the movie because I assumed that I missed it, but watching the first half of the movie after seeing him smack her across the face, and then they say that he knocked her out, even their playful banter at the beginning had this really sinister feeling to it that it hadn't had the first time that I watched it. Because there's a, a part where there's a lawyer who comes in to see William Powell, who plays Nick Charles, and the lawyer is talking, and Nick and Nora have this, like, they have this silent exchange where she, like, playfully kind of pretend shoves him, and then he playfully like throws his elbow up like he's gonna knock her in the face with it and i was like oh this isn't really that cute anymore now that i've seen him literally smack her so hard she passed out yeah and it's so it would be so simple to just push her i don't understand I don't understand why they did it as a character choice even or like I just don't I don't get what it was except somebody in the production wanted to be able to film our lead hitting a woman because they thought it'd be edgy 
And it's not edgy. It's just shitty because it was a very bad reason that the movie felt was justified to hit his wife. And it sucks. Yeah. And I should talk about something else about this film because it's literally two seconds in a film that I at least liked pretty much every other moment of. I guess we should we, we should do our plot debrief. So we start off kind of fascinatingly for the first almost like 15 minutes not meeting our leads and instead setting up the disappearance of our titular thin man who is an inventor in New York. And we sort of set up that he's a bit of an asshole and a bit absent-minded and a bit of it being okay that he's an asshole because he's absent-minded uh, and he's got a daughter and the daughter's going to get married and he's got an ex-wife and the ex-wife is money-grubbing and he's got a girlfriend and the girlfriend is money-grubbing and he's got some business partners and they're all nebulously trying to cheat him. And then we sort of flash forward, I guess, a couple of months. It's not super clear when exactly the the first section takes place to Christmas Eve. Right. And in the first section, the inventor has said he will definitely be back from this vacation, or not vacation, like mysterious science trip. (laughs) Oh, the 30s. Uh, That he's going on and not telling anybody any details about in time for the daughter's wedding, which is happening between Christmas and New Year's, like you do. On December 30th. Right. And I'm like, who gets married on December 30th? Of all of the things in the movie, that was definitely the one where I'm like, (laughs) oh God, she killed him? (laughs) And we then, in a thoroughly charming scene, start meeting our leads. And it's a great shot, too. The crowd sort of parts, and you see Nick Charles lecturing a bunch of bartenders on how to mix a drink, specifically that different drinks require you to have different rhythms, and they're dance rhythms. So, like, uh, Manhattan is kind of a cha-cha. Manhattan is a foxtrot. You're right. Manhattan is a foxtrot. All I really remember is that it ends with a martini. A martini is a waltz. (laughs) Which I'm like, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. I mean, sure. Yeah. Sure. I can't say it's not. (laughs) He then pours the drink he just made and immediately downs the entire thing. And we know basically everything we need to know about the character. Except for the thing that we are about to learn, which is that his wife fucking rules. Nora Charles is the best. And uh, Myrna Loy, who plays her, does a fucking great job. And also, their dog is pretty incredible. Uh, Their dog, Asta, is my favorite character in the movie. In fiction, I thought you were going to say. (laughs) Maybe in fiction. (laughs) Maybe. Skippy the dog is certainly my favorite actor in any movie we've watched thus far. <laughs> I am so disappointed, by the way, to learn that on the Wikipedia page, Asta's name is Skippy, because in the movie, Asta is credited as, and Asta, as themselves. And I love it. I like, I loved the idea that this dog, they just named the dog Asta because that was already the name, but it wasn't. And he's a wire fox terrier, just if you're wondering what sort of dog he is. He kind of looks like a like a schnauzer. This is so helpful to actually... Actually, it's so helpful to a surprising amount of our audience. He kind of looks like my dog if my dog had kind of the, the wishbone coloring to him. He looks a little bit like Oscar. Yeah. Or our friend Lucy's family dog. Yes. So everyone who... When this podcast gets big and people go back and listen to it three years from now, I'm very sorry. 
But to people who personally know us, that should give you some idea. I feel like actually we have more fans who have never met us than we have friends who listen to our podcast. That's probably true already. (laughs) (sighs) But we should get back to the plot. Yes. Because I've spent so much time talking about how Nora is great and Asta is great that it's kind of unfair because they just kind of get introduced wandering into this bar that Nick is in. Nick has been asked by the daughter to investigate the disappearance of her dad. And there's a great little scene where we sort of establish Nora's bona fides because she is the only person that can, like, volley back at Nick effectively for the entire fucking movie. And then the scene ends with her getting a martini delivered and asking how many he's had, and he says six, and then she goes, waiter, bring me five more. (laughs) And line them all up right here. And then we cut immediately to her hangover, which is great. Yeah, and for the whole scene, even when they have a guest who is the disappearing scientist's lawyer, she is wearing as a hat one of those ice pack bags, (laughs) and it looks incredibly chic because somehow that is the only way that Nora Charles can ever look is incredibly chic, even while looking kind of like an adorable mess. Yeah. We now kind of get into this period that I don't know how detailed to get into because there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of setting up two things, I would say. Setting up sort of details about the mystery for the, like, eventual final scene in the accusing parlor and god do i love a good scene in an accusing parlor and this has like the most accusing parlor ee ending of like any film i've ever seen i mean i assume that this is where that begins the like i'm gonna get everyone together for dinner and then i'm going to explain the whole thing yeah and everyone's gonna be afraid that they're gonna be you know fingered for the murder and everybody's guilty of something but not everybody's guilty of the murder and, and i feel like this must be the movie that started that yeah but we'll get there eventually because for now i kind of just want to say like we meet and kind of learn more about the full cast of characters um god i just need to learn clyde winant that's winant that's the name of the thin man the the inventor that disappears Mm -hmm. his ex-wife is introduced wearing the best dress it's fucking amazing and her son The brother of Dorothy, one of the things I wanted to talk about is that just like all the Frank Capra movies we've watched, this movie really goes to lengths to have every character in it be fully realized as a person. Some of them are kind of thin characters. I wouldn't say they're all three-dimensional, but like everyone has a want. Everyone has sort of a character thing. Nobody just shows up to stand there and be like, you've got to go to the factory now, which was a big thing in like a lot of the early movies we watched and like a great example of that is this weird character of Clyde Winant's son who's studying criminal psychology and keeps making pronouncements like you need to (laughs) you need to come to grips with your Electra complex I mean I know I have an Oedipal complex but it's manageable uh Yep, <laughs> basically. Like, it has, it's not out of control yet. And then he, like, really creepily asks the cops if he can come and see the secretary who was Winant's girlfriend, whose name is Julia Wolf, who also happens to be, like, a very famous new music composer I have a particular affection for. 
as does Sean, and he was watching the movie with me, and he kept saying, every time they say Julian Wolf is dead, I think, oh man, what a loss. <laughs> <laughs> but he asks if he can come and check out the body, and the cops, you know, are like, wow, what is up with this creep? So they sarcastically say, like, oh, you know, we'll just bring the body here. And his response is like, oh, great. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. In terms of the, like, mechanics of the plot, that is at best a red herring. And honestly, you never really suspect him. So it's just this, like, weird bit of character detail that's funny and good. And the movie does that with almost everyone. The first half of the film is sort of setting up all of these details about the auxiliary people in the mystery and sort of building up to Nick actually taking the case because he's retired. Nora has money and he is out of the detective business because it's a shitty business and he just wants to be retired and get drunk and fuck his wife. And that's all she wants either. So, like, it's all good. Well, actually, her dad left her some businesses, which he is managing, which I only picked up on on my one and a half watch because it was, again, like, oh, man, this is some weird, insidious sexism that is in this movie. Like, her dad left her a bunch of businesses, so he runs them? I will say, I got the sense from that, because the specific language he uses is, I'm taking care of them. And taking care of them can be like, I'm taking care of my parents' china, in that it's in that drawer over there, and no one's touching it, and it's fine. And so I got the sense that it was kind of a bit of like, yes, I'm working and my work is I'm not doing anything and I'm collecting money from my wife's inheritance, which he's very open about. Right, right. In a way that I thought read as progressive until, again, that weird fucking scene that really makes everything take this weird turn. And it all builds up. The first half of the movie builds up to this absolutely great farce dinner party scene at Nick and Nora's, I guess, like, vacation apartment in New York, because they live in San Francisco but are vacationing in New York for the holidays, that just builds so well. I love that scene so much. It's so great. There's, like, so many little moments in it I love. I love that somebody comes to the door and Nora asks who they are, how they know Nick, And they're like, oh, yeah, your husband sent me up the river once. It's such a, like, cop and detective movie thing of, like, and then they hold a grudge for life. And I love the idea that, like, Nick Charles is so charming that even the criminals he puts away are like, well, fair's fair, old boy. And, like, they all hang out and drink martinis. Well, and the other thing, too, is somebody says something like, oh, yeah, I guess Nick was did a really good job. And he's like, no, it was totally accidental that he ended up. (laughs) busting me (laughs) yeah and the other bit that i love is that the daughter comes in dorothy and effectively because she believes at this point that her father actually is responsible for this other disappearance that he's a murderer now and so she essentially tries to confess to nick to take the heat off of her dad And it does not fool Nick for like a single second and he completely breaks down her story and she ends up like weeping and like going into his arms because they've like known each other since she was a little girl. And at that exact moment, Nora opens the door and sees her husband like with this attractive 20-something girl. And there is this great moment 
of him mugging like, yeah, what do you want? And her just doing, it's kind of the bewitched Samantha nose. It's kind of one of the most romantic things I've ever seen on film. Oh, absolutely. In that there is absolutely no moment of like this mistaken, like, what are you doing with that younger woman? It's just instantly like, what are you going to do? Yeah, fuck you. And then she just leaves. <laughs> and it's great. And so anyway, the the scene sort of builds and builds and builds, and I kind of can't describe it. It builds so well in this farcical. People keep entering. They keep putting them in new spaces. They keep predicting what the person is going to do. It's a fantastic scene. I wish that like modern movies could handle like the build of a good farce the way this scene does. And then we kind of hit the point where, like, Nick has been forced to take this case because in the dead of night, a guy comes in and professes his innocence at gunpoint. Great plan. And then we hit this weird fucking turn where the police come in. Yes. And this criminal thinks that, like, Nick tipped them off uh, psychically and is going to fire his gun. And so Nick hits his wife. And it... It's a really aggressive, I really like need to zero in on, it's an incredibly aggressive sound effect. It's not even just that he hits her. It's that the sound effect is so clearly a like sound effect. Leaves you no doubt of like he pulled. No, he just hit his wife and it sucks. And it's the like most Dashiell Hammity shitty thing in the whole movie and it also kind of marks the turn where this movie stops being a charming movie about a couple that just wants to get drunk and fuck, but keeps getting dragged into murder mysteries, which is a great premise into a detective movie about a guy who happens to be married, which is blah. Yeah, I mean, they still have some, they still have some good exchanges, and there is a scene after that one where she's pretty prominent. But yeah, she begins to fade into the background a lot at that point in the movie where he's like going out and looking for clues and stuff. And it's, it's not anywhere near as interesting then. Yeah, and he like loses her, like specifically like ditches her so that he can go investigate with a totally forgettable police lieutenant character. Instead of his hot, brilliant, super funny, great wife, which is a terrible choice. And then sort of the eventual, we get the kind of murder mystery turn scene where Nick uh, finds this body. The body looks to be the body of like a fat man who is significantly taller than Clyde Wynette. And they, so the police are like, that tears it. Clyde Wynette is a murderer and killed this random dude that we barely set up exists who i think this is and then nick figures out from a bullet in the knee of this body right knee hip who cares it's it's shrapnel in in his lower leg somewhere yeah yeah, yeah. that it is clyde Winant who has been disguised to look like a portly man when he is in fact the titular thin man which by the way he's apparently been dead for three months and buried under the floorboards in this factory that the lawyer was given instructions to close up or not factory i guess like his office lab yeah it's really unclear <laughs> the place where he works so it's been three months which like i mean i don't know how long it takes for a body to decay 
But essentially, like, it's a skeleton in a fat man suit. And so they're like, oh, yeah, well, apparently it was a fat guy who was this one nemesis of Wydance that we only find out about once that is discovered. Am I wrong in thinking that, like, it would not be so deteriorated at that point that it would just be a skeleton? I mean, yes, absolutely. I think that, like, this is... This holds up to, like, murder-she-wrote scrutiny and not, like... I'm trying to think of like a like a usual suspects level of scrutiny. Like it doesn't it doesn't hold up to a like best picture level of murder mystery scrutiny. It holds up to a like maybe a Columbo, maybe a mid-tier Columbo. And that's about it because a lot of the details are weird. Like the daughter's chosen wedding day. Right. And the fact that the daughter gets over at the end of the film her dad's death surprisingly easily so that they can shuffle off to Buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, callback. Nice. Right. Nice. But (laughs) I love that I had to make it a question. But the point is he sort of figures out that this body is not the body the cops think it is. And that is the sort of information he needs to call everyone to a dinner party that is in the accusing parlor. But it's also like straight up a dinner party. That the police are dragging people to, which is great. (laughs) And he kind of does the whole, like, it looked like they did it. But then actually, you would know because of this detail that it would have to be one of these three people. And probably it was that, like, and does that whole bit. I don't want to concentrate on that and instead want to concentrate on two details about the dinner party that I absolutely love. (laughs) One is that even though this is a dinner party meant expressly to figure out who the murderer is, Nora still has time to set a young couple up because Nora's fucking great. Because Dorothy, who brought her seemingly pretty great fiancé around in the very first scene of the movie, has decided that because of the, like, shame of her dad being a murderer, she cannot marry that guy, and is with some rando at this dinner party, and Nora just, like, seats her old fiancé next to her, and just constantly takes digs at this new asshole, um, and encourages Dorothy to get back with her ex. It's kind of the B-plot of this scene, and I love it because it's such a, like, normal dinner party thing in the middle of this totally bizarre murder confession dinner party. And the other thing that I love is just how much everybody in the scene really does do the... (laughs) Have you seen that Mitchell and Webb look sketch where somebody figures out they could just not confess in the accusing parlor? Yes. That they don't... It It is definitely that scene where everyone just instantly, in order to not be suspected of what he's accusing them of, admits to some other crime or some other horrible thing. Just immediately... Right, like, I needed the money or whatever, and you're like, but, but you... No, nobody said you did. I didn't kill him. I just stole $20,000. And it's like, you could have just stopped it. I didn't kill him. <laughs> like, he doesn't have any proof. <laughs> and, you know, again, knowing the, the constraints of the genre, it's a great scene. Like, it's everybody does a great job. It's a super fun scene. When the... It's the ex-wife, right? What? Who's the murderer? Yeah. No, it's the lawyer. Oh, right. Okay. So right. so here's the problem with that scene. 
Apparently, the actor playing Nick Charles said that he had so many lines to learn and could barely decipher the complicated plot that he was unraveling that while they were shooting it, the oysters that were on their plate just became totally disgusting. So, like, everyone who worked on this movie never wanted an oyster again. But yeah, I mean, making it the lawyer was like, what? This, um, hmm. You definitely pulled this out of your ass. Okay, they kind of set up the lawyer. Also, I'm remembering I'm confused because one, the lawyer was sitting next to the ex-wife, and two, the ex-wife is kind of involved in the, like, staging business that happens when the lawyer pulls out the gun and tries to, I guess, shoot Nick? That seems like a very poorly thought out plan for a guy that went this detailed on his murder. Why does he have the gun under the table? He's done everything so sneakily by, like, Sending letters and having people pretend to be Wynant, calling him at Nick's house. Right. And there's like six cops in this room and 12 other witnesses. And he's got a revolver. So just like from the number of chambers that are in this gun, this isn't going to go well for you, my man. (laughs) But, But anyway, no one gets shot. They disarm him before he can shoot anybody. And we then have this last scene where I guess there were guests of honor at the wedding we never saw for solving the bride's father's murder, which seems like a thing that would, that doesn't seem like as great as Nick and Nora Charles seem, that doesn't seem like how I would plan my own wedding had my father been murdered and someone solved it. Even if it was a super charming rich couple, I don't think I would invite them on the honeymoon. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I also don't know that I would necessarily have still had a wedding wherein there could be guests of honor. I think it might have been a very quiet family only grieving thing. Probably would have delayed the wedding a bit. Yeah, I feel like I would have pushed that out to like (laughs) maybe March. Yeah, for instance. And all this does take place between, like, Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. So they still get married on the 30th of December. And it is on Christmas Eve when the daughter asks Nick to work on this case. So we're talking, like, five days, six days. And she's just like, well, I guess my dad got murdered, but at least that was solved. So let's get married and shuffle off to Buffalo. Which is my new favorite way to say bang. (laughs) Yeah. I I do actually, again, have to say, like, the last scene, even though it's super weird, is really charming because when they finally get away from Nick and Nora, they're like, oh my god, I thought they would never shut up because we have to fuck because we just got married. And, like... Almost blat- almost directly stay that- say that. Like, as close as you could without dropping the F-bomb, yeah. As close as you could in a movie where a married couple has separate beds. And then there's one of the best bits of acting by Asta the dog slash Skippy. So Nick and Nora go into their cabin, their train cabin, and they have bunks that are one on top of the other. And she gets into the bottom bunk and says, you know, put Asta with me. And he picks up Asta... And throws Asta onto the top bunk. And then we just see Asta, like, kind of do the dog thing where he walks around a little bit until getting comfortable. And then, like, sits down and then puts his hand, his arm over his eyes 
Like, oh, I'm not going to watch mom and dad do it. This is a dog that I don't know how they instructed the dog, but the dog 100% gives the exact signal of like, oh man, they're going to have sex. (laughs) Oh, mom and dad are having sex. Gross. And like, there could not be another interpretation of what this dog does. Like, I don't know how they trained the dog to do this. And now that I think about it, I don't want to think about it. He definitely knows. Which to me, actually, I watched that scene three or four times because it was so charming. Literally just that little bit where the dog gets comfortable and then goes, aww, and puts, he doesn't make that noise, but he does put his arm over, or his front leg, you know, a dog arm over his eyes. Yeah. Anyway, end of film. Right. So generally, this movie is actually quite good, except for the weird shit where once Nick slaps his wife in the face to the point where they, and they make a point of this, that she is knocked out, all of their like cute little playful fighting takes a really, really weird turn because he's always kind of winning and he's always kind of giving her shit. She's pushing back and then like, A lot of times he will do something physically to sort of end that banter. I think there's that. I absolutely think that's true. Although I do have to say, I still think, even given that, I don't think Nick Charles would ever be a, as a character, would ever be abusive toward his wife. I think to me, it is more about recontextualizing this, like, banter they have as, oh, he always gets the last word. He always wins. Like, oh, it's 1934. Like, no matter how sassy she is and how much money she has, the power dynamic is clarified by that scene in a way that really kind of fucks up the equilibrium of this charming relationship that I really loved. I think that in the production, somebody had this weird desire to see a woman get hit. But I don't think as a character, Nick Charles would ever hit Nora as a, in like in an abusive manner. I do think it was like he's got to do it to like in universe. But that still is like oh in universe he can just hit his wife and we just move on. And that really fucks up the power dynamic. It fucks up the give and take of this like equal relationship where they like he's the brilliant detective but like she gives as good as she gets and it's great. She's pu- always pushing him to you know, investigate more because it's kind of this fun sort of foreplay between them. And like, it's, it's a really like the core relationship of this is super duper solid and smart and great. And it's kind of fucked up by this one singular moment. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It definitely colored the rest of the movie for me. And, and in rewatching it, it colored those interactions. It's also really bizarre because they take great pains to say that it knocked her out, but watching it despite the sound effect he literally just slaps her on the face with only with only his fingers like doesn't even give a full palm and i'm like yeah was that was that even really necessary you know like it could have just as easily have been like he tried to push her but he turned around really quickly and slapped her on the face and so she was like oh why'd you have to slap me instead of why do you have to knock me out? Right. And like, there's so many other ways you could do that scene that would be so much better. Just like I found the lady for a day, bizarre, racist, oriental accent. Just this so totally unnecessary, such a bizarre choice 
This is such a bizarre choice that fucks up so much of the movie for me. Yeah. In any other movie, he would just push her over. And, like, we would not be talking about this. I would have forgotten to mention it in the plot write-up if he just pushed her over. Right, right. (sighs) So, yeah, it is otherwise, though, a really enjoyable movie. I feel like this is something that we're now seeing more and more as we're getting further into this project is like, I was really expecting for the most egregious stuff to be at the beginning. And that like, as we moved forward through the years, like people would become a little bit more enlightened, but it does feel like the thirties are the period where it's really taking off where like casual racism, casual, like hitting your wife for her own good and for her protection is okay. And just like weird sexism is really coming to the fore which is not my expectation at all i really thought that like it would be super super bad in the 20s movies and it would still be bad in the 30s because like i'd seen 30s movies before like i knew what to expect but i thought it would be worse earlier and it's actually kind of seems like it's worse now seven years on than it was in the 1927 movies yeah here's what i think is i think every decade's gonna have its own like Let's lighten the tone with some, oh my god, why did they think this was going to lighten the tone? I mean, comedy is like the thing that doesn't last, right? That like, it's always sort of of the moment and like what the cultural mores are at the time. And like, even jokes that were made like five and ten years ago, when you go back and watch them, are cringeworthy. So like, I guess it should be expected that ones that are 80 years old are definitely going to be uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. But it sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Like, nevertheless, it definitely sucks. Because otherwise, this movie is really, really fun. A couple of things that were great in this movie that I want to touch on. Sure. That we didn't in the plot. The day after there is this egregious slap of his wife, Nick and Nora are sitting in their living room where they have the Christmas tree set up. And he is shooting balloons off of the Christmas tree with an air rifle that he is aiming with his feet. Yeah. Apparently this was put into the movie after Floyd, who's the actor, was like goofing around on set and just kept shooting stuff with an air rifle. And they were like, yeah, that's hilarious. Put that in. Now, see, that's comedy that survives. Physical comedy usually stands the screen test of time, provided that it's not spousal abuse. It's also great because it's this physical bit of business, and this movie is great at this, that doesn't slow down the dialogue. Right. That they are still having this great, charming back and forth, where he keeps noticing like new jewelry that she has and going, where did you get that? And she keeps going, oh, you got it for me. <laughs> um... <laughs> And it's great. And is actually, like, again, if it weren't for that friggin' previous scene, a great, like, rebalancing of the power dynamic of, like, it is her money. And that does create this interesting, more balanced... Anyway, whatever. I I don't mean to ruin you talking about a good thing by tying it back into that other scene. But yes, I also, I loved that scene. It was great. And then to even attempt to pull out the best exchanges that they have, like the funniest exchanges that they have, would be impossible. But one that I definitely remember is she's reading the paper and it says something to the effect of, you know, oh, he was, Nick Charles was shot twice. And she says, oh, well, they say you were shot four times in the tabloids. And his reply is, they never got near my tabloids. <laughs> 
Right. And then he just fires another bullet out of the air rifle immediately. It's great. The costumes in this movie, too, which you touched on a little bit, are really just tremendous. And... I mean, the 30s just had great clothes. Like, the 20s definitely had flashy numbers with all the flappers and everything, but now we're getting into, like, the era of the long, bias-cut whatever. For instance, the dress that you were talking about that... Mimi Wynette Jorgensen. Yes, that she's wearing has these, like, incredibly long sleeves that, like, drop from the wrist almost to the floor, and everything is fur-trimmed. It's almost like a sequin ball gown had sex with, like, a just a robe, like a bedrobe. It has the, like, long sleeves of a robe and the, like, little fringed uh, sleeves, but it also is just, like, a sequined ball gown that zips up in the back. It is insane. It is, like, it's great. Nora has an inverse of that, which is a a robe that she's wearing when she answers the door in that scene. Yeah. And even Julia Wolf, who I guess we're supposed to think is, like, relatively dowdy, when we meet her, is wearing this black velvet dress with these huge puff sleeves that puff to, like, just above her wrist, and then it's tight from that on. And then the back is this, like inset white lace that comes like all the way down to the top of her butt this is our dowdy old lady that he's been having an affair with for however many years (laughs) she looks amazing and nora's dress that she wears at the christmas party it's like striped chiffon with this ruffle that goes all the way around her like in a spiral and where the chiffon overlaps it creates checks because the stripes line up The outfits of this movie are just phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, I'm a hero. I was shot twice in the Tribune. I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids. It's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. Hey, everybody. It's David. I just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you that if you haven't yet, uh, subscribing to us on iTunes, liking us on iTunes, reviewing us on iTunes, doing all that in other podcasting apps all helps get more listeners to the podcast. Which means that I can also do ad breaks and like, hey, you guys tried Casper mattresses? Well, don't until we tell you to. That's right, Casper. We're holding you ransom. That's bad, probably. That's probably illegal. Susan, maybe cut this part. Susan? Susan? Ah, bullseye. Hello? Who is it? Oh, send him right up. I guess let's get to rating this movie because, like, I feel like without the one terrible moment i would be sitting here talking about whether or not this beats it happened one night i'd be really like hard debating it even with that one terrible moment i feel like it's worth debating because it happened one night did have some stuff that made me super uncomfortable which is that you know clark gable treats claudette colbert like shit a lot of the time and in a way that's actually like more consistently abusive than the way that Nick is with Nora. Yeah, I think that's I yeah, I guess that's fair. But I guess it's like I to me it's just such an acute moment of like it it was just instantly in my brain I was like, "Oh, this now can't go higher than an 8." Like just like it like in a single moment, in a way where like it was spread out over the course of it happened one night these small moments of like, "Oh, that was kind of shitty." That was a little bit shitty. That kind of sucked. And <laughs> like, and in this, it's just this one singular moment of like, fuck, why'd you, fuck, 
Damn it, we were doing so well. Yeah, I mean, so even putting that aside, right? Which, like, Mm -hmm. let's not say that we are for the full grading, but, like, let's put that aside and then compare it to It Happened One Night. And I'm going to say that it's not as good because it loses the relationship as the focal point. And it becomes, like you said, this movie that's about a detective who happens to be married by the second half, which is not nearly as captivating it's not nearly as interesting whereas it happened one night keeps the relationship as the focal point through the whole movie i am going to push back on i'm going to generally agree but push back on it just slightly to say i do not think that would be nearly as acute if it weren't for the the terrible scene um because i think you would be kind of carried along by the mystery a little bit in the back half you would still like notice it, but I don't think it would be it would feel so stark without the without him hitting her. I I think you would still notice it, but it would not be like I don't know. I I do feel like structurally I would be carried along by the accusing parlor scene a little more if it just didn't do that fucking terrible thing that it does. Yeah. I, I guess so. I mean, I don't want to say that this movie lags in the second half, uh, but I do feel like it's it's hard because we're finally at a point where, for the most part, movies know how to, like, pace stuff. Whereas there were movies that we watched before where it was like, oh my god, there's only 30 minutes of, like, actually engaging material in this, and the movie is two and a half hours long. <laughs> yes. And that is not the case here. But I do think that the stuff of, like, going and getting the body x-rayed and all of that, like, kind of, it, it kind of drags for me. I would agree. I think it kind of also is like, oh, I have to start paying attention now. Like, oh, this is the part where we, like, get the mystery shit. And, like, I do think a more modern movie would more elegantly kind of kick the little clues and little details you needed while still keeping up the kind of farce energy and the kind of back and forth between Nick and Nora, instead of having, like, very clear relationshipy drama scenes. Drama makes it sound not like comedy, but, like, where primarily what you care about is emotional stuff, is sort of back and forth and what what the characters are doing and feeling, versus these sort of mystery scenes where it's like, oh, I gotta pay attention to details now. Um, and would blend those two things better um, than this movie does. Yeah, I did feel like there was not enough dropping hints about the lawyer, because I feel like if you're going to do a movie where you bust out the surprise, like, it was actually the lawyer all along thing, you've got to weave that in and out, where in retrospect you're like, oh shit, it totally was. And like, I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do, because I don't think that I can do it. And, and you know, I look at something like The Usual Suspects or, I don't know, like any movie that does that successfully. This one did totally feel like it was out of left field, particularly because in the reveal parlor setting in the, or the accusation parlor, that's what you called it, right? Is that the name of the trope? Uh, no, it's a bit from Futurama, where there's an episode where people keep getting murdered in a, like, sort of a dream episode. And Zoidberg is trying to investigate it, and when he is incredibly bad at investigating it, and they just cut to him in a Sherlock Holmes hat going, I've gathered you all here in the accusing parlor, and it's just a set you've never seen before with a grandfather clock and a bunch of really nice old chairs. Right. It's an an accusing parlor. Right. Okay, that makes total sense. Exactly. I, I definitely felt like the accusing parlor scene was a lot of, like, 
Nick is throwing out some hunches that they have absolutely no supporting evidence for whatsoever. And it's just that the lawyer reveals himself that makes it work. Absolutely. And like, again, I think it's like, that's kind of the movie you're in. And so I kind of went with it and I kind of thought it was fun. Uh, but absolutely as a like mystery, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. The only thing that holds up to scrutiny is like, you thought he was a fat man, but actually he was a thin man. He was the thin man. Do you get it? It's the name of the movie. <laughs> and all the other details, you could, you could basically sub it out clue style and have any other guest at the dinner party be the murderer and I would have been like yeah okay there were actually guests I would have believed more and it really just felt like they picked the lawyer because they had set so many red herrings throughout the film that that was the only way to make it a surprise and it's like okay fine but also there were a lot of people who had motive so you could have picked anybody you'd set up throughout the film and it still would have been satisfying yeah but that's i mean i'm quibbling a little but i do get what you're saying i just i love mysteries because i love either being surprised or like knowing what it is and part of this too is like so my dad is the most infuriating person in the world to watch a mystery movie with because and i do not know how he does it but he always figures stuff out like five minutes in and he complains that he doesn't like to watch movies because he figures out the end in the beginning and he would talk about this all the time and i finally when i first saw the usual suspects was like okay daddy you have to watch this movie and we are gonna sit down and watch it together i'm gonna make you watch the whole thing and as soon as you know like what the what's going on you have to write it on a piece of paper fold it up and give it to me and then we'll open it at the end and i'll see if you got it and I swear to God, we were like 15 minutes in when he was like, Kaiser Sose is the guy who's sitting in the cop's office. And I was like, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> but like, if the if the material is there to figure that out, that's sort of the fun of it. Like the sixth sense. I figured out the sixth sense, I think, like the first time that What's-His-Face comes over to the kid's house. And I was like, oh, well, obviously, like, he's dead because nobody's talking to him except the kid. Yeah, I, I think you definitely, like, this is definitely a movie where, like, you figure out the mystery by process of elimination. You, like, go, like, oh, they've made such a big deal out of this character that it can't be them. So it's the lawyer. Right. Like, and, and it isn't that they, like, have dropped subtle hints or clues that it's the lawyer. It's just it can't be anybody else, so it's the lawyer. Like, it's not the gangster, because that's obvious, because he would kill anybody. It's not the daughter, because she's, like, she's already tried to take the heat for it and he's like no here's why it's not you it can't be the mom because that's too obvious or her husband because that's too obvious like asta the dog is really the only less obvious one <laughs> than the lawyer yeah. and like that doesn't bother me that much as long as the rest of the movie is charming which it mostly is but i i i do agree with you that it's a, at least a little bit of failing of the film but i i don't Eight? Eight? What did we give It Happened One Night? I think we gave it an eight and a half. Yeah, then I feel okay giving this an eight. Maybe a seven and a half? I feel comfortable giving this an eight. I think it's very, very close. Like, as far as dialogue goes, like, this is definitely a superior movie. There was some great moments of dialogue in It Happened One Night, but the dialogue in It Happened One Night really is about, um, it's not as clever. Like, this movie absolutely gets witty banter. It absolutely is, like, 
sort of the birth of the of what will become the noir speedy back and forth exchanges. So yeah, I'm comfortable giving it an eight. I'll give it an eight. All right. Should you watch this movie? I'm gonna say yes. I'm also gonna say yes. I Nikki and I made a night of it. Had some steaks. Had some martinis, and just watched this film, and we had a good time. Did you, but did you did you shake the martinis to Walt's time? No, because we by the. Because we'd already had a martini at that point. Uh. Well, maybe Nikki did. I, I will say when I made the round after the round that Nikki made, it was fairly late in the film. And so I was not I was not really in any shape to waltz on any level. Yeah, I we had a good time. We were weirded out by the one weird scene. Talked about it a pretty significant bit. But honestly, what Nikki and I spent a lot of the movie doing is casting a hypothetical modern remake of The Thin Man. Daniel Ortberg, a few years back, was throwing around the idea that we should revive Columbo and just have somebody new play Columbo every season. And how is the Thin Man not like NBC makes like four Thin Mans a year and then just has a different couple as the Thin Man, like as as Nick and Nora Charles every year? Because it's just it's such a great formula and updated where they can actually have the sort of power dynamics and the relationship they should have. It's just, it's great. I mean, there there was a TV show in the 50s. Yeah, and like, I, sure. And and there's been modern sort of Paget Brewster and Paul F. Tompkins uh, for a long time for the, the Thrilling Adventure Hour played a couple in a, a sort of repeating segment of the thrilling adventure hour called beyond belief where they essentially played nick and nora charles investigating supernatural mysteries instead of regular ones and it was a very clear thin man riff and it was great and there have been various attempts to revive it last i heard johnny depp was trying to bring it back and let's not do that for sure Yeah, let's let's definitely not do that. Yep. Particularly since the very thing that we're trying to get rid of is slapping your wife. Yeah. This is such a charming movie and such a charming idea for a movie and such a... You can tell why they made six sequels to this, and it's because this is a TV show. And it's a great TV show. It's the pilot to a really great TV show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I that's why they made a TV show out of it, though it did not star William Powell and Myrna Loy. So I don't know, like, how good could it possibly be? Yeah, you really gotta, you gotta have that right energy for them. And they're, they do such a good job. One of the things I learned in research uh, is that, like, this was one of those Hollywood couples where everyone was like, oh, they're definitely an item in real life. And they were not an item in real life. But it totally makes sense for people to think that. Because it is a very, it is a very lived in relationship, as opposed to like, even it happened one night has that like, oh, we're just so swept away by the grand romance of it all. And it's the like, beginning stages of it. And like, that's kind of relatively easier to play than just like. Yeah, they're a couple. They're a long-standing couple, and they're still in love. We do get to see them play a couple uh, again in in 1936. He plays Flo Ziegfeld, and she plays his wife in The Great Ziegfeld. That's great. I know we don't watch any of the other Thin Man movies, because they kind of go downhill, I hear. <laughs> Imagine that. Though I, I am kind of considering watching them and just kind of reporting in as we come 
through those years. Um, at least the first one or two before I go like, actually, these do get horrible. <laughs> we also get to see Skippy the dog again in the 1937 movie, The Awful Truth. However, we do not get to see the three of them reunited ever again. Aww. Maybe maybe in the other Thin Man movies. Yeah. Did, did he star in the other ones? Yeah, he comes back for, Asta comes back, I think, for all of them. Well, probably not all of them because the last one's in 1946, so... Oh, no, ni- 1947, 1944, sorry, Skippy's successor is in The Thin Man Goes Home. Yeah, I, that makes some sense, because that's a, that's a long life for a dog. For The, the last Thin Man sequel is, is 46, um, so... And the last one he was in was 41. But still, like, that's a good run. Yeah. That's a long career for a dog actor. And that's, and that's what, that's the note we're going to end on. <laughs> So yes, I, I think you should watch this movie. Just be aware that there's going to be a, a moment where a man slaps his wife to the point of unconsciousness completely unnecessarily. Yeah, it's it's not it's not great. It's not but great. The, but no. the rest of the movie is very good. So next week. Yeah. Next week, we are watching a movie called Here Comes the Navy, also known as Hey Sailor. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I did not make that oh, up. That is my god. That is that is that is a factual thing that I just said, even though I said it in that way. Starring Jimmy Cagney and Pat O'Brien and some other people. I feel like okay. So the poster is oh, and Gloria Stewart, who who plays the old woman in Titanic. Oh. Oh. She will not be playing an old woman in this because she is no. definitely too young at the time. So the poster is garbage, which is good. It seems like unironically propaganda for joining the Navy, which is maybe not so good. Right. Our mm-hmm. our male lead's character name is Chesty O'Connor, which is the best Bond girl name I've ever heard in my <laughs> life. Yeah, what a waste. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I'm excited to see how this one turned out, because it could go a lot of ways. It it definitely could. It also has Frank McHugh in it, who was in uh, the front page. He, he's playing Droopy this time, so that's something. He, he played Mac McHugh in the front page, and I gotta tell you, I have absolutely no memory of who that character was i literally don't remember i the only character i remember from the front page and that's assuming i have my newspaper ones right is the the uh escaped convict who patiently explains that he is actually not a bolshevik but an anarchist who believes in helping (laughs) others yeah you do have them right that is that is the that's that is that one. And that eventually that movie somehow becomes His Gal Friday. <laughs> That's all I remember about that. Anyway, this guy's going to come back. This guy we in no way remember at all will reappear in Here Comes the Navy or Hey Sailor. I feel like there is a non-trivial chance that our next episode is just going to be us trading ways you could pronounce Here Comes the Navy. Here Comes the Navy? <laughs> Here comes the Navy. <laughs> Here comes the Navy. <laughs> so, so yeah, tune in next week where we just do that for 35 minutes. <laughs>
Yeah, and un- until then, this was a great TV show pilot. And I really feel like Taron Killam would make a great Nick <laughs> Nick Charles. Get at me, Hollywood. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good choice. That is a good choice. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Hey, hey, don't do that. Don't tell your paper I'm working on anything because I'm not. He's just working on that little girl. I want to talk to my partner. I want to talk to Bob. Oh, Nikki, I love you because you know such lovely people.